Well, I want to welcome you to the producer panel, which uh, it, we're calling A View from the Field. And as Ronnie mentioned, we are fortunate to have some excellent uh, producers from uh, around, not only around the world, but kind of rec uh, represent a spectrum of sizes of operations and types of crops that are grown. Uh, our, the way we're going to do this is that I will introduce the panelists, and then I've asked each of them to spend uh, 10 minutes or so kind of talking about their operation and the history of their operation, how it's changed over the last 30 or 40 years. Then I'll ask them a few questions, and then uh, we'll open the panel up to questions from you, the audience. Uh, our first panelist is Guillermo uh, Bellatini, and he is the commercial manager for Leog, Argentina which was founded in 1982 by the Kalbetzer family. Pardon my uh, pronunciation of some of these uh, words, but Liaga's business model was developed around the concept of sustainable agriculture with the belief that long-term projects should be economic viable, ecologically sustainable, and socially responsible. So the three bottom lines that, that uh, we are hearing about uh, more recently. Mr. Bellatini began his career with Liaga 20 years ago as junior assistant to the commercial manager and was promoted to his current role in 1995. He has a degree in agricultural engineering from the University of Buenos Aires. Uh, he's completed an intensive program in business management at Astral University in Argentina and an oilseed futures and options uh, trading course through the Chicago Board of Trade. He's a member of Liag's Social Responsibility Board, which governs social responsibility initiatives and of the Argentinian Grain and Oilseed Export Chamber. Next to him, we have April Hemis, uh, and she has operated her family farm south of Hampton, Iowa, since 1985, a farm which has been continuously owned by the Hemis family for more than 100 years, encompasses approximately 1,000 acres, including corn and soybean rotation, 20 acres of hay, 30 head cow and a 30 head cow calf uh, herd. Ms. Hemis has helped develop programs for educating women in agriculture focused on finance, marketing, interge intergenerational communication, and ways to inform asset owners. In 2011, she traveled to Uganda through the Iowa Uganda Farmer to Farmer Exchange and recently traveled to Brazil with the delegation of farmers from Iowa and Delaware, Delaware and the state secretaries of agriculture. Ms. Hemmes has a bachelor's degree in animal science from Iowa State University and serves on numerous local, county, and state boards and committees. Her honors and awards include being named to the Iowa 4-H Hall of Fame, the Franklin County Iowa Alumni 4-H Award, and the 2011 Midwest Regional winner Monsanto Company's American Farmers Farm Mom of the Year Award. Brandon Honeycutt is next to her, and he farms with his father and brother in Hamilton County, Nebraska. Honeycutt Farm raises corn, soybeans, and popcorn on a fully irrigated uh, farm that his family has owned also for more than 100 years. Mr. Honeycutt is continually researching projects and, or products and methods to improve productivity and preserve the natural resources. Uh, Brandon has a bachelor's degree in agribusiness from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's chairman of the Nebraska Corn Growers Association and also belongs to the National Corn Growers Association, the Nebraska Farm Bureau, 
the Nebraska Agricultural Technological Association, and the Americans for Choice and Competitiveness in Agriculture. He has held various leadership roles in these organizations. When not farming, uh, Brandon is discussing agriculture on Twitter. His Twitter uh, name is Cornfed Farmer and other social media outlets. And at, the, at last, but certainly not least, is Mirdula Sharma. She and her husband, R.D. Uh, Sharma, own a family farm in Uttar Pradesh, India. She's a family man member managed the farm until Sharma's husband retired. 2005, the couple began to manage the farm themselves and have strived to improve cultivation methods and grow better produce given the constraints that many farm, Indian farmers face. The farm's main crops, wheat and rice, are rotated with mung beans and pigeon peas. Mrs. Sharma has also served as principal of the Anruha Public School and has taught history, political science, and English at the middle school and high school levels. Mrs. Sharma has a master's degree in history from Mir University, a Bachelor of Arts, and a Bachelor of Education from the University of Lucknow, and a bachelor's degree in classical dance from Bhat Khandu University. So with that, I would like to uh, ask Guillermo to tell you a little bit about his operation uh, in Argentina. Thank you, Mark. Good afternoon. First of all, I would like to thank the University of Nebraska the opportunity to be here the opportunity to share with colleague farmers from different parts of the world, to hear about their views and their challenges. And finally, the opportunity to share with you about our conception of sustainability and also tell you about the changes I witnessed in 20 years in working for this company. As Mark told, is in Argentina, we have this one. Okay. Um, we have different properties. Uh, we are seeing a map of Argentina, southern part and central part. This uh, family owns uh, around 80,000 of uh, land, hectares, sorry. Uh, and we rented also almost 20,000 hectares. Um, Argentina, to give you an idea, is a country with an area about one-third of the U.S. with 30 million hectares of crops and with a production about uh, 95 to 97 million metric tons. Um, those beans in, beans in yellow are uh, grain-fed agriculture, and those marketed in red are irrigated farms. This is a brief description where the properties are, the size of each of them, and the geographical distribution. And this is a, a brief view about our production system, the yields we have as an average, and comparison between USA's average and Argentinian average. To get to the main point of my presentation, I would like to focus on this particular farm. This farm is in the north and is irrigated farm. Uh, it has an area of 41,000 hectares 
that's converted is at about 100,000 acres, and irrigated is uh, 16,000 acres. It's one of the largest irrigated farms in Argentina. In the beginning of this project, this land was developed by gravity irrigation. We take the water from the Juramento River. This is a regulated river by two dams. And one of them, also the province has a power generation station. And once we take the water from the river, it's moved for, for a canal of uh, 30 miles length to our property. Uh, it's interesting to remark that this uh, water is, uh, is not any one horsepower involved of the movement of this water, it's just gravity. We also have several dams, about 1,000 hectares of uh, area to reserve or to keep water in the dry season. And in the beginning, it was developed by gravity irrigation. Um, this uh, field is laser level in two ways, one for the irrigation and another for the draining. So we can collect all the tail water in the tail canal, store it in the dams, and then use it for later irrigation on low-lower fields. In 1995, we decided to, to move to more efficiency in the water consumption, and we started in, uh, purchasing the mechanized irrigation in linears. These equipment are one of the largest in, in the world. We have uh, 21, this equipment, and it covers 700 hectares each one. It is uh, 1,700 acres. This design is uh, developed by, or for a complementary irrigation because in summer where the important crops uh, are on the field, we assume that we receive pretty enough rainfall. Looking for more um, productivity and efficiency, we uh, started a look at the ground, uh, shallow groundwater. So we installed 18 capacitant probes that measure level waters or moisture on the soil in intervals of 20 centimeters. And the data is sent by GPRS to the web and downloaded in our computers to decide at the proper moment of irrigation or not. Well, coming to the cropping system, I took this part of the, our vision statement because it explained very well how we feel the sustainability concept. For us, it's a wide concept that not only includes the production system, also includes the economic results, the ecological impact, and the social impact on, on our neighbors. So our crops are 100% in no-till system. We plant wheat 
on the driest season of the year, that is in, in winter, of course, uh, just to keep the soil protected against erosion, against, and also to protect the following crop and the emerging plants. We also adapted a, a stripper head in the combines to leave the stubborn stand up and to give more protection to the, to the soil. And this change was uh, improved a lot our system of, pr of production. Uh, we measure every year the organic matter levels and we are slightly increasing it. Another big change for us was the availability of GMO corn, cotton and soybean varieties. It helped us a lot to have clearer fields um, to control, to a best control for weeds. And finally, we get into the precision farming on 14 years ago. And this uh, chart is showing the, our history on this concept of precision farming. We start with, we, we saw some variabilities on the same field. So we start to try to measure it and we bought yield monitors and we put on the contractors combined because at that time it wasn't so available this technology in Argentina. We were first, one of the first adapters of this technology. After that, we collected a lot of uh, information and with assistance of professionals in the university, we developed a, a yield map. And after that, we realized that we have to move on the following uh, step, that is site-specific management strategies. So we went to the variable rate application. We started with the seeding, especially in corn, and with fertilizing applier. Also, we use this uh, system to control our operation, even our own machinery or contractor machinery. In cotton, we use another, with another help of technology and help a lot. That is, cotton is a, a crop that must to be controlled with growth regulators. But in the same field, we don't have the same vigor or the same canopy. So we downloaded every 15 days satellite images that show us different vigor situations. Then we go to the, to the field and check these boundaries of these images. And after that, we decided the proper doses of growth regulator. Of course, we have auto guidance system and boom control in sprayers. And our last innovative is, uh, innovation is a variable rate application on planes with this uh, device that is attached to the boom of a plane to get the variable doses on the aerial spraying. Well, cotton is our main crop. Is, uh, I can say this is our flagship. In this chart, we are seeing that in the hectares planted and, and the years, and even in the hardest day for cotton due to low price and strong diseases, we still plant it. Uh, by now, our cotton plantation take up around uh, 12 to 10 to 12,000 hectares. Uh, we add value to the, our cotton production with two modern chains that are installed in the same farm to reduce freight cost. 
and also it permits us to get better quality fiber because we have a well-known commercial brand name because of the characteristics of our fiber, such characteristics like strength, length, and micron air. We plant cotton in two different row spacing and they are totally different management. I left this uh, issue to the end, but not because it is relevant, because on our time life it happened the same, it's recent. As you know, Argentina has been through many crises and in the last one, uh, we decided to analyze what is our, our role, our responsibility there. And then we moved to the action with this uh, social responsibility committee I, I like to point out that this is not, the owner is not an Argentinian, but is really concerned about the social impact of their activities in Argentina. And uh, some of the actions, just to give some examples that we delegate in so people or our staff as voluntary to be part of the existing community centers on the little village around us. Uh, We're talking about 1,300 uh, people in, in, in this small village. And I'm working together with these people, they analyze the needs and they make a list of priorities. Um, of course, one of the first priorities was education. So some of the, our employee children are supported with scholarships that cover the cost of uh, housing or the transfer to the cities where the universities are. Also, our agronomists spend some hours in fourth and fifth grade of our school uh, as volunteer teachers. And then they bring students in small groups to the, our farms by the time the labors are, are done just for training. In the primary school, we found ruin and spoiled material like the furniture. Um, we are, with the parents, with the participation of the parents, we put all the tools, material, and resources needed to rebuild this furniture. And important thing to say that they did it in the spare time because also the, the, our people want to be part of this change, not only a management decision. Uh, we also have uh, donated the library to this small village and we are promoting right now uh, a fresh vegetable garden and uh, pieces of land that uh, we donated. So we believe that everybody in our company contributes to our economic success, but at the same time, contribute to development by our people and the community around us. And this is our commitment. Thank you very much. Thanks, Camero. April, you want to tell us a little bit about your farm? I'm trying to get the picture. It might take just a second. Okay. Um, I would like, I'm April Hemis from Iowa. Um, I would also like to thank um, the powers that be for asking me to be on this panel. I have absolutely no idea why I'm here. I'm just a farmer 
like many of you out there. Um, I think probably the reason I'm here is that in my case, I'm the farmer. My husband doesn't farm. He has nothing to do with the farm. He has the real job at, in town, makes the money so to support my habit. Um, it's rather kind of him. So um, it's uh, like, like Mark's mentioned, it's a thousand acres. Um, I've added, I have to say my husband and I, because you know, he has a real job, um, have added a couple hundred acres over the years to the farm. Um, this is a picture in uh, God's country and they're in Iowa. And those of you Nebraska people who don't know where Iowa is, it's this little state east of the, <laughs> east of the Missouri River. Um, we are all, I'm a dryland farmer. You know, we have very little irrigation in Iowa. So many of our uh, conversations are over water quality. Um, being in Nebraska and being from Iowa, I have to um, talk about how Iowa's number one in corn production number one usually in soybean production, number one in hog production. I'm pretty sure we're probably number one in ethanol production. And I feel sorry for my fellow panelists over here that has to farm in Nebraska. That's all I can say. But uh, <laughs> so we are fortunate enough to have the soils, the water, and the climate very conducive for um, growing crops in Iowa. So a little bit about me is, um, I grew up on this century farm, fortunately. The, it's far enough away you can't see the giant ragweeds growing up around a lot of those buildings. But um, I uh, went through all four years of ag in my high school, Future Farmers of America, or FFA. Um, I was the first girl to do so because they only allowed girls in a couple years before that. Then I went to Iowa State University and a degree in animal science. So as I drove by a small stadium out here on the way here, yeah, it about killed me a cyclones here, but that's okay because you guys are in the Big Ten now, so you can go play the dark side, Iowa, and uh, have fun. So, sorry, there, I got my jabs in. Now I'm done. I'll be serious. And so, so anyway, when my senior advisor at Iowa State, I graduated in 1982, there I just dated myself, um, farm crisis, boom, came down, it, and it hit hard. There was not many of us in ag that graduated with a job. And my senior advisor said, April, what do you want to do? What's your dream job? And he knew the answer, but he still asked me. I said, I want to go home and farm. Um, he said, why do you want to waste yourself? Why do you want to waste your life like that? You have so many other attributes you could do anything. And I said, you ask. But you know, he was only doing his job at the time. There was not very much of a future in farming in the early 80s in Iowa. So um, I had several jobs, but um, I, when I was working for a congressman in Washington, D.C. in 1985, it doesn't take a farm girl long to know she doesn't want to spend 16 hours in hose and a dress in one day. So I made the phone call home to my father and grandfather and said, I, I'm come, I really want to come home. So fortunately, they made room for me. And 27 years later, I'm still there on the farm. Um, I have two, I also have two children, uh, a son who goes to the dark side, I don't know where I went wrong, and um, a daughter who just graduated from high school, and she's headed off to University of Washington in Seattle. So, that's a little bit about me. Um, through these changes on the farm, um, and I've seen a lot of them, we're supposed to talk, what, 
of, about the changes we've seen. Nothing compared to my grandfather. Like when I came home, I farmed with my father and grandfather. My grandfather lived to be 101 years old. He drove every bean to town for me when he was 98. He planted beans at 100 and combined corn at 100. Now we're sitting in the combine and he goes, I can't really see to the end of the snoot. And I go, let me drive from here, Grandpa. But <laughs> he wanted to get up there and say he combined corn at 100. So he had a lot of changes in his lifetime. And so has the farms. Oh, this is, isn't that pretty? See, don't you wish you lived in Iowa now? And <laughs> this is a picture of my pasture and my cows. And, the water, and I forgot I put that in there. That is, um, we've recently had in my area a wind farm go in, 160 wind turbines in the area, and this year they're starting to add, I think, 80 more. Um, I didn't have any on my farm, as you can see, mine's on this side of the road because I'm in the, in the flight path for the huge Hampton, Iowa airport. So, couldn't have any, that, and I, anyway, that, and that was okay. I didn't want to really want to farm around them, but. That's how we look, non-irrigated, rain-fed corn. That's pretty much how it's going to look in July. Um, and here's, then we go back to the olden days. You wanted to talk about changes. Well, here you go. My grandpa, who I love to tell stories, and boy, did I get to hear a lot of them over and over again. But uh, he started farming with three blind horses. And I said, really, Gramp? You can farm with like normal horses. He said, well, they didn't spook as easy and they were cheaper. So <laughs> he, that's how we started farming. This is uh, the, a picture of the farm and how they used to pick corn by hand. And then there's my great grandma and my dad and my great grandpa and that was combining oats. So fortunately, we didn't still have this combine when I came home because I can't imagine combining soybeans in an open cab like they used to and all the dust. Ugh. So. That was combining oats back in the day. And then there's my lovely combine now. And they wanted pictures of our farm. Well, I'm busy farming. I'm not pic taking pictures of me farming, so I have no idea where this came from. But um, I was doing a talk the other day and, I, er, and getting ready for it. And I looked at my husband and I said, have you ever even ridden in the combine? And he looked at me and he said, no. So he really doesn't have anything to do hasn't even ridden in the combine. And I'm not in love with brand new green paint, so I just keep fixing the old girl up and she keeps working. But that's, um, that's the change. And then that's unfortunately not my combine as I just stated. I should have lied, I never thought of that. Um, that. My daughter took that picture of my neighbors from a corman. But that's the, I just kind of wanted to show the progression of what we've been through and uh, how we've changed. Um, on our farm, when I came home, we plowed, moldboard plowed, everything. Since then, we've gone to conservation till or no-till. Um, the seed genetics, I think, are one of the biggest changes. Um, back in the day, they would wait till the acorns got to be, what was it, squirrel ears, size of squirrel ears or something like that. Um, now, I started planting this year, April 11th, and um, our average bushel, since you're like 500 of my closest friends in here, I'll tell you what I really get. Because if I was in the coffee shop, I'd add like five bushels, you know? Because you always have to do that, it's the law. But um, over the past few years, it's, it's averaged between 190 and 200. And like I said, it's just all rain fed. We have no irrigation. And soybeans is 50 bushel an acre, 55 if I was in the coffee shop. But um, usually around, 
around there, really, it varies since we rely on Mother Nature. Um, equipment has changed dramatically. Um, it, as you can see in the progression of pictures, it's amazing. We, I've added 200 acres and I do it with just me mostly. A little help in the spring and the fall in the busy times, but usually I'm doing everything out there and before it was less acres with me and my dad and my grandpa and maybe help here and there. Um, and farming and stuff, and technology. When I handed my grandfather, I'll never forget this day, I handed him the magazine that said, you know, auto steer was here, the, glo the global positioning and auto steer, and he looked at it, and he looked at me, and he said, I always knew they'd do it. I didn't know how, I didn't know when, but I always knew they would figure that out. So imagine the changes he started with his three blind horses to auto steer. So it's amazing the progression that's gone on. Um, no more row cultivating. Thank you, Lord. If you want to put me to sleep, put me on a cultivator. And we were talking about that. <laughs> we just don't like to do that. Um, and glyphosate, or Roundup, made me a really good soybean farmer. I really wasn't so good at raising soybeans before, but Roundup made me pretty good at it. As <laughs> and um, in the spring, on my farm, since uh, very few employees and I have the cow-calf herd. Um, I do liquid nitrogen with the, half, with the herbicide, the grass herbicide put on. I chose that so I didn't have to get a sprayer ready. I didn't have to drag on anhydrous. I just didn't have the time for that. So it's my hired man in the spring. I hire that done. And um, I've done that for about 20 years just because of, of the um, time-saving it was for me. Um, I also, I'm all Roundup or all glyphosate-resistant crops. It was just easier. Um, last year, I did see a little bit of resistance. I, I know no one else did on their farm, but when you have one water hemp standing straight up and one, you know, drooping down and the chemical guy goes, well, next time just put on 10 more ounces of Roundup. And I go, you know, I just don't think that's going to do it. So. This year, I kind of switched things up, and we did uh, different herbicide broadleaf for the resistant weeds and in both, both corn and soybeans. Um, let's see. I have to have notes, or as you can tell, I kind of start rambling and go off. But um, um, let's see. Oh, 20, I've been a Soil and Water Commissioner for almost 20 years now, and the changes there that I've seen just um, serving on that committee has been amazing. Um, unfortunately, the lack of funding from especially the state of Iowa um, has decreased, and we, but the, the, as you can see, our landscape is rather rolling. And um, from, from where I'm at in the county to, all you have to go is 10 miles north and east, and it's prairie pothole country. It's flat as can be. So they have the water. And our um, issue there is tiling. So to get rid of the excess water, and I've just got finished uh, pattern tiling all of our farms. And that just makes everything consistent. I can get in the field quicker with the water surface. But then there's the water quality issues um, that we have to think about. So since we just rely on Mother Nature with the tiling and our farm ground in our area goes for over 10,000 acres, or $10,000 an acre, uh, farms are selling for. So you're putting that kind of a commitment 
financial commitment into farm ground, you want to get the most out of it. So that's what a lot of people have gone to is um, the pattern tiling and um, bringing that farm quality up just to have a level kind of playing field or a level planning surface to get going. Um, with the water quality issues, we have the runoff and um, with the, the hills and the phosphorus and nitrogen and all those things have to be considered and there's many things that farmers do, especially farmers like me, that know that this ground is going to be with me and my family for a very long time and has been. So we have CRP, wetlands, buffer strips, riparian zones. There's a lot of things farmers can do. A lot of new things coming down uh, the pipe that, um, like at the end of a tile, they're talking about uh, bio bioreactors, I think, which sounds nuclear, but it's just wood chips they're burying in the by the tile to let it filter through there before it goes into the streams. So that's something new and water regulation devices. So there's many new things coming out um, to keep our ground more productive. I recently put in a wetland. It's on a piece of ground that I fought for 20 some years. You know, you just, you try to get it in, it would stay wet, you'd tile it, it was still wet and I put it into wetlands. My dad at the time got great, you know, the, has good money rent from the government and I don't even have to look at it. I just look at those happy ducks in the wetland and I don't have, no, I don't have to farm it. So um, doing different quality, water quality issues in Iowa for farmers has, is really a priority on our farm and that's where it is. Thank you. And then you get to follow her, so you can uh, get back a little. I don't know if I can follow that. Okay. Uh, like Mark said, uh, my name is Brandon Hunnigan, and I'm very glad to be here today. You know, it's great. I'm just an hour from home. You know, we spent a lot of time here in this great city watching, uh, since she's taking shots at Nebraska, the Nebraska Cornhuskers watching football and our national championship teams, which that's all we need to say as far as football is concerned. But... As I'm here, it's been really exciting because I live on a farm and I live on the actual location that's been the family for over 100 years. And sometimes you forget about the history of the farm, even looking at old pictures and just saying, okay, where have we come in those 100 years? You know, where, where was it that my great-great-grandfather was at? Where was it that we moved up to? And just these, um, you know, 100 years is not a very long time. So as my wife and I and our six kids live, live right there on the farm, I do farm with my dad and my brother, and I do have an uncle and a cousin who farmed just down the road from us. And about 20 years ago, my, my grandpa decided to split up the farm. It was my grandpa, my dad, and two uncles that were farming. And so I'd always grown up outside on the farm. You know, I'd grown up uh, helping drive, drive the pickup when we were hauling out an irrigation pipe. I was the one out there cutting weeds out of the soybean fields. Um, I was a kid who, at the age, I think it was three, left the house, walked across the road, jumped up in the tractor with dad, and I'm pretty sure I got spanked over that one because my mom had no clue where I was, but I wanted to be outside in the field. And I've got a three-year-old now who does the exact same thing and drives his mother nuts, and I just laugh because he'll walk out to the shop and want to be with us. That's kind of the right where, right where we live. Um, it's been a very interesting time over these last 30 years. You know, I've been back farming full-time with my dad for roughly 13 years, but like I said, I'd spent a lot of time out there on the farm prior to that. So 
we are on the stages right now on our farm of replacing uh, our last center pivot that was put up in about 35 years ago. Um, we've, we've upgraded every single one except for this one, and it was, it was time to do that. But in those same years, we were running gravity irrigation in some dry land, um, but our water efficiency was very inefficient. You know, we were running as much water as we could down the field to make sure that we could, could grow a crop that probably at the time was only averaging 150 bushels an acre. Slowly over time, we, we moved to, to uh, center pivot irrigation, which increased our, our water efficiency, but at the same time, we were still disking up the fields, we were still cultivating, we were still doing all these things that, that were constantly turning the soil, spent a lot of time in the tractor, uh, in high school, you know, get, staying out playing baseball till midnight, getting up at 6 a.m. to go cultivate, dad, dad, coaching baseball, missing games, whatever the case is, to make sure we could get that crop cultivated. Throughout that time, too, we had a mixture of crops. You know, we, we are now, as Mark mentioned, mainly corn, soybeans, and popcorn. But up even before that, we had wheat, we had uh, sorghum, we raised, raised seed corn, mainly for Pioneer, a little bit for Syngenta. And so there was a lot of things that we were doing on the farm. And throughout that time, we slowly started making the integration to, to different ways to make sure that, hey, we want to be able to increase our yields, be more efficient on the farm, and make sure that we are uh, maintaining the, the soil and, every, and the groundwater for the next generations now. Because I didn't want to be the last generation farming. I knew my dad didn't. You know, I want my, my sons or daughters to be able to come back to the farm and, and hopefully their children as well. So there's, there was a slow transition that took place of, of equipment, you know, from running the big four-wheel drive tractors, which was the only thing on the farm that I've never gotten to run because I, I had an uncle and a grandpa who basically took complete control of that and would not let me run it. Could be the fact I was eight. I, they maybe thought I was a little young. Of course, I didn't think that. Um, but we've made this, as I mentioned, we made this transition. And the 90s, as the 80s were a hard time financially for a lot of farms in America, the 90s were a weird time for us because we had taken our farm, which was around 3,000 acres, split it three ways, and I went off to college, and I was that kid who took six years to get a four-year degree, um, mainly because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life, but I'd always wanted to farm. So come back in the late 90s, and we were still somewhat in the same phase of, we're, not, we're no longer disking the ground, but we're cultivating the ground constantly. We're hilling everything. We have seed corn, so there's some, some things that we have to do um, because of what the, the seed companies tell us we need to do. And about that same time, we had the, the GMO crops come into play. And we started looking at more and more technology. And, and as I looked at the pictures that, that the other panelists were showing, our farm's much the same way. It's all green, which, just as a side note, my three-year-old does think the color green is actually John Deere. So he does say, if we point to something that's green, he calls it John Deere. He also points to anything red and calls it Huskers, but that's... Yes, I think I have warped him. Um, but we started this process when I came back of really looking at how we can become more, even more efficient. Let's, let's move to, do we want to go no-till? Do we want to go uh, strip-till? What, what do we want to do on this farm? And as we moved out of seed production um, for a, a number of reasons, 
it allowed us to really concentrate on how can we make sure that we are maintaining this soil even more so than we were. So we can lessen our, our carbon footprint in, in a lot of ways, but we're out there and we're strip tilling now. It's, it's kind of a modified strip tilling, vertical tilling, where we're just tilling seven inches, eight inches, nine inches of that soil to make sure we have that firm seed bed going into the next season. Uh, we, we're maintaining most of the, the residue on the soil to make sure we're, we're holding in our water, to make sure we're, we're keeping the soils cool in the summer, to do all those things that we need to to make sure that we're preparing a farm that we can be proud of. We're also implementing, by the same time, we started, okay, what can we use for multiple technologies? Okay, let's put on the auto steer. And that was one of those situations where we had to because we made some changes in the seed corn production. We needed it to make sure that we could, we had torn all our fields up and we had no way to actually put a mark down to, to drive them. So we, we needed the auto steer. We needed to prove that it worked on the farm. Okay, let's go to the variable rate, variable rate planning, variable rate um, fertilizing, and most recently variable rate irrigation. What else can we do? And, and, and as we looked at this, we knew that one of our big areas as we're talking about water was continue to be irrigation. And we knew, not just watching ourselves, but watching neighbors around, watching agronomists around, that there was way too much water being pumped on these fields to really produce a crop. And so working with uh, our, our NRD in our area, the Upper Big Blue NRD, working with Dr. Erbonk here at the university and working through some of these, these other groups, we started utilizing the capacitance probes and one, maybe not specifically capacitance probe, but watermark sensors which then led to capacitance probes and using other companies out there to say, okay, how much water is this soil holding at any time and do I need to irrigate? And we started to see that, no, we don't need to irrigate. And it was actually more fun because it became a challenge because of my uncle's field across the road and watching his, his agronomist just tell him to keep irrigating and he's running, he's just pumping more and more water on his corn than I was on my soybeans. And I was putting less on my corn than I was on my soybeans, so it became this, challenge and we started to see some of these changes in the neighbors and saying, wait a minute, something, something's going on here. We need, to, we need to do something different, less water being put on. Which, which at the beginning stages of, of the watermark sensors, we proved that they work. We saw that we did not lose yield, which also led us to use uh, daily monitoring of rainfall, which, gets, which we, which we um, do with the Nebraska Rain Project through DNR. And we've put that in now for I don't know, eight years. Um, we, we, we utilize ET gauges to measure our evapotranspiration, which we utilize through the University of Nebraska through a full system of producers who are, who are maintaining that, or, or um, inputting this data on a daily basis so we can see what's going on around us to say, okay, our, our soil probe is saying X, our ET gauge is saying Y, do we need to irrigate? No, we don't. We know what crop, what growth stage we're at which then led to the actual natural progression to, to, to what, what was shown earlier on the picture of the same uh, with the capacitance probes of being able to monitor that right from the computer, from, from the iPad, from the smartphone. So we know at any one time. And we actually, a few years ago, we, we've, there's been some things that we weren't able to quite figure out irrigation-wise. And, and this was a situation where we had the probe in the ground, we were monitoring it on a daily basis, and Dad said, why don't we run one more put one more inch on with the pivot. Let's put one more inch on and let's see what happens. And we, we showed some things on that probe that most people have said were impossible 
but we showed what a well-timed irrigation at the right time of the year with the right soil conditions can do. We're able not to irrigate the rest of the year when everybody else was, and we watched the, the, the moisture levels go down in, in a fashion that was um, what, what everybody said was just like they were supposed to, stair-stepped down. So we're, we were saving not just water, but we were saving electricity. Um, in these cases, because they were electric pumps, you know, we were saving wear and tear on the, on the uh, irrigation equipment. And that led to the natural progression, the irrigation equipment of being able to monitor those directly from the I iPads. And we were joking earlier that when we were cultivating and putting in 16, 17 hour days, sitting on a tractor, staring at corn rows or staring at soybean rows, you've gone from that or from hauling out pipe and, and where everything was draining in that fashion to everything's become um, a mental, a mental exhaustion, a mental, um, how, how can we really push this technology-wise? So it's becoming a lot more of a thought process organ, uh, thought process game than it was a physical game. And so we've seen this progression in, in 30 short years that I've, that I've uh, really been paying attention on the farm from, from flood irrigating everything where we're, we were putting on way too much water to now where we're legitimately only running our pivots and putting on five inches a year. And we're not in an area that's under water regulation, so it's been really fun to see what we can do and still maintain our yields of depending on the year, anywhere from on irrigated ground, 210 to 250 bushels an acre, and really make sure that we've done it. And we're, we're pushing that because we, my dad and my brother and I do farm um, 2,600 acres, and we've really utilized that, uh, that equipment on, on all those acres, and we are now literally monitoring every field that we have. Um, and so it's been a fun progression to see, and the technology-wise on the farm from, from 10 years ago, or yeah, about 10 years ago at the Nebraska Ag Technologies Association conference of using the little, seeing the, the uh, little compact uh, computer handhelds come out and say, okay, how can we use that on the farm to this year, plugging an iPad in to one of the monitors in the combine, and now I can carry all my planning records with me all the time and be able to pull up at any one time and say, well, no, that's where this hybrid is, that's where this replication is, that's where this trial is. And so it's become this, as we push things on our farm, of research-wise, of, of how can we become better and make sure that the crops that we're producing are using less and less fertilizer and less and less water and maintaining yields and let's use less chemical, let's, let's do everything less and, and produce more of a crop and, and we think a better crop. That, that at the end of the day, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes and that's where where we've been on the farm, and it's been a it's it's been fun from being the kid who was um, coming home after school, emptying corn bags of seed that you know at the most could produce about 180 bushels an acre, to now having seeds that that even my sweet corn this year is able to be sprayed with Roundup and be able to kill every single bug known to man, and which makes my wife really happy that the sweet corn will be clean this year. So, thank you very much. Mirid Lalat. I am Mirdula Sharma. I have come from De India. We own a, in comparison to American farms, we'll say we own a small land holding 
in district Bulanshahar, which is quite close to New Delhi, east to Delhi. Uh, now, to in tell, I would like to tell you something about the historical background because of which we are having the land holdings in India are very small in size and then I would like to make you familiar with some of the agricultural practices still prevailing in India. Now historically uh, in India we were having zamidari system. The zamidars were the big landlords who had large areas of land under their dam and they, uh, they had a number of tenant farmers to uh, cultivate their land. Now after independence, after India became republic, now land reforms were introduced and the zamidari system was abolished. So the tenants who were cultivating the land became the, the owners of the land. After that the Land Sealing Act was introduced and Land Sealing Act was introduced and uh, it, the ceiling was fixed at 18 acres and the surplus land with the farmers was given to the landless laborers. So as a result the size of land holdings became very very small. As, as you can see on the graph that about 45% of the land holdings the size of it was less than uh, uh, approximately half hectare that can be uh, cal uh, calculated as 1.25 acre and the first three graph com com in uh, if combined together they form 83% of the land ceilings and they all come under the limit of 5 acres that is of 2 hectares. So because of this the it changed the uh, agricultural scenario altogether. And uh, now there was no big farmer, maximum uh, farmers had very small land holdings. Now we were also, once upon a time we were also zamidars and had large land holdings in two neighboring villages. Now as the result, uh, and these farms had been with our family for much more than 100 years. But after the introduction of these land reforms, now the tenants on our land became the owners of the land. Now with the fixation of ceiling, the land was divided among our family members and the surplus land that was with us was distributed among the people, landless people of the village. So this is how this, till now we have uh, with our larger family, we have a land holding of 25 acres. Still we are among the 2% farmers who hold a land holding of 18 acres of above. So this is how the pattern had changed, agricultural pattern. Now as regards the weather, we, uh, we experience about 0 per, uh, degree Celsius temperature during winters, uh, in, during the months of end of December and January which rises as high as 48 degrees in the months of summer, that is in the month of June. We experience almost 100 centimeters of rain in an average year. This monsoon is concentrated in the, from the end of June to the mid of September. 
Now, our uh, land holding is located, as I told you, it is quite a little bit northeast to Delhi. So, it is uh, located in the northern Gangetic Plains. Now, these, because they are on uh, the banks of river Ganga, this soil over here is very fertile. It is alluvial soil, which is very fertile and it is very good for growing maize, wheat, sugar cane, pulses, uh, rice, etc. Uh, we take normally two cash crops per year that are wheat and rice and after wheat we also sow moong beans and dhecha, dhecha sesviana indica that is for organic manure. Now, as regards beans, if there is time, we reap it, otherwise we pluck the matured pots and again till it for organic manure. So, we do not count it as cash crop. So, these are the crop cycle you can see. Uh, now, you know the finances, finance is the thing that affects the life of a person the most. As you, if, as you can see on the screen, which shows the expenditure and revenue, you will realize that annually we uh, uh, get hardly we can are able to save a net amount of $7,000 out of which we have to spend every year we have to spend at least $1,000 for land leveling and the growing of these legumes for organic manure. So, we are left with hardly $6,000 per year or you can say $500 per month. Now, this is a very, very small amount to support a family of five decently. So, it was because of this that we had to leave our farming when we had children and my husband, he was a qualified mechanical engineer. So, he took up a job with the government and we shifted to the city to good and there was uh, other drawbacks also difficulties that was we could we were not having good health facilities or good health, uh, educational facilities in the village. So, we shifted uh, to give good proper education to our children and it was only after he retired that we came back to the village again to take charge of our farm ourselves. Now, by this time our children were settled. Uh, decently and we had enough finances with us uh, and with no uh, we had no responsibility on us. So, we thought we can spend our finances to develop agriculture and do something for our village. So, these were the difficulties you can see on the screen there is no good street, there is no good uh, school. So, when we came back we tried to develop our farm in the best possible manner. On the screen, you can see on the left hand side, you can see that the methods that were adopted by us earlier, the, they were plowing was done with the help of animals, there were manual uh, sowing of seeds and manual harvesting. Now, that was the method we were following earlier, but after we returned, we tried to introduce uh, technology, we bought new implements. Now, these all photographs are of our own uh, farm and of our own implements taken recently after we came to know about this conference we had done. So, uh, we started sewing, we bought all those implements. Now, out of these, 
the first two, we can say the technology of tractor, harrow, plow, sowing drills, these are also hired by the small farmers even today. They are practicing the primitive practices as well as they are hiring these practices. But the practice of harvesting, that is harvesting with combines and reapers, that is practically not possible for them because in India we have very small plots. We can, you can say even one by six acre of plot a person is having. So these technologies are practically not viable for small farmers. We have all means of irrigation. Earlier we have a canal from which were, which were used earlier for irrigation. And we were, earlier we were using the, there were wells and oxen were used to draw water from the well. Then the diesel engines were introduced to uplift the water for irrigation. And it was in June 1974 when I got married, the electricity was introduced to the village. So since then, we are also using electric tube wells. At, in, in earlier times, we used to transport our produce to nearby uh, markets with the help of oxen carts and bullock carts. Afterwards, we bought tractor, trolleys, and now we, as we grow seed for the seed corporation, so we are transporting the seed, uh, wheat seed, to the corporation uh, go-downs of Seed Corporation of India and to the Fourth Corporation of India. So in, with the help on uh, tractor trolleys as well as tracts that are hired by us. To conserve water, we try to make certain efforts. We try to make maximum use of canal water. But India, to get canal water, actually we get canal water for on fixed days and on for fixed hours. So naturally, we need to uh, irrigate the fields with other methods. So to conserve water, we do the leveling of our land. Now that we do with our own levelers, we hire laser levelers as well. So if the uh, our farm is in a northern plains, it is not a hilly area, but still we need to level it so that the land can be irrigated with the minimum volume of water. Then we also make use of no-till method, so that the moisture of the ground, is, moisture of the soil is conserved as well as we need very little water to water the field. So this method normally we are using. Uh, while growing legumes. And we have got the cemented channels built to transport the water from the tubules towards the fields. So these are the methods we are trying to introduce to use for conservation of water. Now, in spite of the development of uh, technology, the life of a farmer in India is not so comfortable and it's not very rewardable. We face a number of problems at every stage of crop growth. So now the educated people and the youngsters do not find this profession of choice. So that's why educated people and uh, youngsters are not following this profession. And uh, now I would like to thank you for giving me an opportunity to be here on this platform and present my thoughts. Thank you.
All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by asking a question, and then we're going to open it up to, to the audience to ask questions. Um, and I guess what I, what I would like to ask is, um, as you look to the future in 10, 15 years, how do, what do you think uh, your farming operation will look like? And especially as you think about it in terms of water and, and the changes that you see, what will they be brought about? Will they be brought about by technology? <clears throat> kind of changes, government regulations, um, different management practices. And uh, why don't I start with you, April? Oh, sure. Take them high. On my farm, <laughs> changes, are we going to get to, pro you know, the other question you had, or is this? I'm not sure. I, we're oh, kind of short on well, time, so maybe okay. we'll just go to this okay. one. Um, I can see far more of the precision farming coming into play. Uh, with the ability to map all of our ground. And um, I, I put my fertilizer on in a variable rate. I have everything uh, grid sampled. Um, I can see going, maybe even fine tuning that even more. Um, precision farming and planting and uh, placement of nutrients is gonna come into it big time because those of us in the Missouri and Mississippi River Valley, river watershed, know that we have a target on us from EPA and environmentalists because agriculture unduly, I think, um, is getting the bulk of the blame for the dead zone in the Gulf. And I wasn't going to get into all this, but you know. Um, so we really have to watch, especially in Iowa, like I said, with the abundance of waterfall with uh, the phosphorus uh, attaching to the soil and the runoff, uh, nitrogen leaching through. Um, with all that, we just have to be far more precise in our placement and um, with our nutrients and the manure management of all of that we apply to the soils. And I think in the future, that really is going to be, play a lot into uh, how we farm and what we do. Okay. Mrs. Sharma, do you have a, would you like to answer that question? The, the, the uh, what you think your farm will look like in 10 or 15 years, what, what kind of operation and, you know, what, what will cause the changes that you see? Uh, I, I wish it should, uh, the technology, uh, it should look like better because certain, if educated people are uh, just adopt this profession and we introduce that, in India, we have a very conservative bent of mind. And we, if we introduce any change, it is not accepted quickly. We have tried to use, but of course, there, is, there has to be someone to introduce it. And uh, what the effort which are making, and if we are successful, we certainly will, uh, it will come up well. And uh, the other farmers will also adopt those practices and the, there will be certain, uh, certainly much development the farming. Okay. Guillermo? Um, I, I think in the next uh, 10 to 15 years uh, in, in our area, we should improve our uh, water distribution system. Uh, we are a part of the group of users, and we have a committee running the agreement. Um, Something very interesting was told in the previous speech by, by uh, Ruth. Um, and in this also needs the 
interact with the government, which there are some uh, questions that are beyond our capabilities, like, for example, take the drainage of the area, uh, the basin, uh, because we, we are in a sub-humid area or semi-arid area, but sometimes we have even floods. So, um, and this is a real challenge for the next 10 years. And in the terms of our uh, particular operation, uh, I think we are going to more uh, systems and, and we are going deep in this complexity of, of uh, new technologies. Um, we are going into the remote control or telemetry for, for the equipment. Uh, we are thinking seriously to move more far, more uh, lots from the gravity irrigation to mechanized irrigation. And of course, we uh, hope the, the, all the seed company, technology company, uh, still uh, get, uh, give us more more uh, uh, challenges to, to, to get and, and to improve the, the, the final level of production and quality. Okay. Brandon. I was thinking about this question a little earlier. Um, I think in the next 10, 15 years, I really hope that we see a uh, movement on our farm and in, in agriculture in general that, that you'll see more of a understanding of the water, crop, soil um, interaction and really what can we do within that system to, to become more productive? You know, is it going to be certain, certain seed types within certain soil types within a certain on your field which will be watered accordingly and everything will be censored in some fashion um, hopefully on our farm you know, we'll be really pushing that that technology envelope to the fact where you know as, as we as Guillermo said the, the telemetry stuff and, and as we're really looking at how we can remote control our equipment how we can really pay attention to what's going on on a daily basis out there so so we know that that um, this challenge out to my seed friends that are out there in the in the uh, audience to really work within the different companies and within the different co-ops and the soil sampling uh, companies to really figure out okay how can we best put this hybrid of corn into this field at this location to really maximize what's going on out there because we know there's some interactions going on that we're just starting now to see and hopefully within 10 years we can get that figured out because if, if the goal is to push the U.S. national corn average to 300 bushels an acre, it's going to take a whole lot more than just what we're doing right now to really get to that point. And that's where I see it going the next 10 to 15 years. Okay. Are there questions for the audience? If you have questions, if you'd come up to the mics. While you're thinking about it, I'll ask Brandon a question. Uh, the 210 to 250 bushel acre, what would that be in terms of coffee shop uh, bushels? 300? 300. No. <laughs> kind of yeah. thought. The, depending on who the first one there and who you need to just one up. Yeah, so. yeah I, it's always true with water is, uh, you know, rainfall as well. You yes. don't want to be the first one to say how much rain you got. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, my name is Chepelai. Uh, I have a question about uh, the agricultural regulation, uh, especially with respect to uh, greenhouse gas emissions and uh, water pollution. Uh, to be precise, um, today, early morning, 
um, senators from Nebraska and congressmen sent an, uh, a, a letter to the director of EPA about some uh, aerial photographs uh, taken in uh, region, uh, region 7, which include Nebraska. You as a farmers, uh, how do you feel concerned about uh, this regulation on water pollution and uh, greenhouse emissions? Someone want to start out? How do you feel about water pollution regulations and greenhouse? Uh, well, I think um, as a farmer, I don't like being told what I have to do. Um, and I can see that coming through regulations and things like that. And knowing that I'm a family farmer and going to pass this ground along, I am going to do all I can to protect the water quality and the quality of my land as much as I can. I can't guarantee what the other farmers are doing. Am I worried about it? Yes, because these are people who make policies and mandates for what we have to carry out and what we have to do. And um, whether I'm the one who's doing it or my neighbor is, we all have to take responsibility for it and um, improve how we farm. I know that didn't answer your question, but it was really politically correct, right? You, you don't have to be politically okay. correct, April. <laughs> Uh, from the regulation standpoint, from the, we'll just say the flyover standpoint, you know, there is some, some overstepping of bounds that I think occur within, within any, any, of this stuff, any of these operations when, when somebody's being allowed to monitor something without full knowledge of what's going on and, and without seeing what's taking place. Because we know within uh, animal production, you know, whether it's in Nebraska or Iowa or in, in other parts of the world, when you have big rains, we have certain things that happen, um, acts of God type thing, that, that there are pollution issues that happen. But we do know that on a daily basis that these guys, especially the guys around me who are raising livestock, have really upgraded their facilities, have really, really done a good job of trying to make sure that they're, they're staying in compliance, that they're doing everything that they can. And then they're also re, re, um, using the, the manure and the different things off there to put back on their ground for their, their crops. And from our standpoint, you know, I'd say in the in the countryside, I'm not as concerned about the green, whole greenhouse gas concept as some people are, because for starters, when you know, there's a lot of things you don't worry about when you're you have a, you're in the wide open spaces of Nebraska, which there's a lot of wide open spaces in Nebraska, and there's a lot of green growing this time of year, so there's a lot of things that that we're utilizing, and and so some of that is not as much of concern. But the the overstepping of regulations, the overstepping of monitoring, that is a concern. Uh, do you have uh, do you have a is that is overregulation a concern in Argentina or where are you relative to to the government um, dictating certain kinds of actions? We have some uh, regulation, but not about the water pollution. Also, we are obliged to to not to to pour all the excess water or some contaminated water back to the to the system to the river. Um, uh, another regulation that has just few years is about the set aside land. Uh, the whole country was uh, scouting and, and divided in different areas, and they called the red areas, yellow and green, uh, due to the risk of erosion. And 
we have to put aside in red area, we cannot touch any piece of land. And in the, the yellow and green ones, we have to, to keep some reservoir. But the important thing is we have to be through a public audience. So any groups of oppositors to the, any kind of project of, of development must be criticized and, and we have to deal with. Uh, if the project is, is, is good enough and finally is, is good for the rest of the, of the people around, and I told in my presentation mm -hmm. about the responsibility, uh, finally uh, you will get the, the approval. We did it in the other farm in the north, one of the markets on red, if you remember my presentation. And we, we finally get it, and, and it was good for mm -hmm. a group, for, for the society entire. How about in India? Do they have some strict restrictions on, uh, on water, how you, your water quality and, and uh, uh, Of course, uh, but uh, not uh, many restrictions regarding the water for irrigation. Mm -hmm. Of course, they are for the purification, this uh, clearing of uh, rivers and all for that, we are having restrictions. But uh, irrigation, there are regulations related to the timings that we get from canal, can, water we get from canals. But as regards to the quality, I don't think there are much okay. regulations. Are there other questions out there? In Nebraska and elsewhere, there's a concern that our farmers are getting older and that our young people raised on the farm are moving to easier lives in the city. And I'm wondering if that's an issue in your countries and specifically, who will be farming your land, do you think, 30 years from now? And what kind of skills and education do you think they will need to have to be successful farmers? Uh, in, not, in my country, the, we have a lot of young people coming back to the farms, even if they, they don't have any relative or they don't own a piece of land. Uh, they are doing as a professionals. It's not so easy sometimes to move people from the cities to the, back to the country or for first time to the country. Uh, of course, it depends on us what kind of quality of life we offer to them, but uh, it's, you know, we, we don't have the problem that the, the farmers are, are getting older. Um, there are a lot of uh, young people and, and even inside the families there are followers that uh, the, the pioneers. So uh, it's not a problem. And about the, the education of the people, this is a really important point and uh, we manage a lot of information and some uh, uh, and coming from different uh, science so we need highly qualified people uh, it's not uh, the case when in a small farm or family farmers the, the, the owner has a good level of education and has access to the university Sometimes we have the same combines and uh, April told in hands of some uh, uh, worker that we have to prepare to handle the, an iPad, uh, a GPS, and 
So uh, we promote uh, strongly uh, training and, and, and education on, on, on these new technologies because for us it's no more the future, it's, it's the present challenge. Mirdala, how about in India? This is a very important question that has been raised because in India that is the greatest threat before us because now the conditions as I told, I just referred to that the conditions in the villages are not at all good and the lifestyle, the standard of living, everything, nothing uh, even, uh, it's not uh, at all, we must say, luxury we can't think of, but basic needs are also not met. So uh, all are uh, just going towards the cities and if, even if we have gone, uh, I, I'm talking about ourselves, our uh, me and my husband, my children are not allowing us to live there because they say, how can you live there in such conditions? But if everybody of us will leave, what will happen to our land? So we are trying to inculcate some love in their hearts for their lands. That is the main thing, love for the roots. And till we were away, my mother-in-law was there to take care of the land. And afterwards, as soon as we came back, so we are trying to provide facilities at least at home for them. And we are having mode of transport. We are now we can have cars and of course, just we can have the facility of electricity by keeping our own generators and water supplied by our own tubewells. So this is how we are trying to provide them facilities. But of course, it is a great threat and the government needs to be uh, to do a lot for that and then another uh, most important uh, factor for this is the finances when we are not earning uh, even substantial amount of money then how can one expect us to continue to do the drudgery till uh, for just for nothing the life of a farmer is very diff very difficult so I think either the government and uh, will have to do something. Then of course the technology. Uh, in India we are not, uh, it's very difficult to avail the technology, the modern technology. We are making use of combines but there are very, very selected few farmers who are making use of it. And for common farmer it is not practically useful. It's, the implements are so costly that we can't afford to buy them. And if we want to use them, we don't get it in time. So these are so many challenges that we are facing until these challenges are met. Of course, uh, in the years to come, I think uh, the younger generation <laughs> won't come to the villages to do it. Only this we are doing, this we are trying to develop in their hearts the love so that after they retire from the jobs, if they come and stay there, that's all, let's hope for the good. Let's hope they come, but it's really a threatening question, especially in India. April has decided Iowa is another country, and she wants to answer that as well. Um, um, I always tell people, um, talking especially with non-farmers, farmers is one of farming is one of those few professions where you can't just wake up one morning or decide to go to college and say, "I want to be a farmer." I'm going to college to be a farmer. Especially here, you have to have the infrastructure to be able to come home because it's just too expensive otherwise. And um, in our area, I'm seeing quite a few kids because farming's not too bad right now. 
I can't say I'm a poor farmer from Iowa without getting Snickers now, but um, it, you know, it has been, I started farming and 27 years ago and I've seen corn prices go from buck 50 to almost $7 I sold corn for. So there, and I also know it can go back down just as quick. So the young kids that are coming home now think it's good times forever and all of us old guys know it isn't. But when I was in Uganda, on the Farmer to Farmer project, the women farmers working with women farmers there, I found out that farmers are the same the world over there. It was amazing, no matter what the scale. These are women with two to four acres at the most, no running water, no electricity on their farm, and we were working with them with record keeping and things like that because they know how to farm in their way, but we had a discussion time afterwards and one of the women said to us, how are you keeping your young people on the farm? It's really a problem for us. With all this technology, how are you keeping them on the farm? So they're thinking of this even in Uganda with no running water, no electricity on their farms. They see a progression of it there too. So it's a question the world over. Okay, thanks. We have one, one time for one last question. Uh, Prem Paul, UNL. Uh, Mark, uh, what a great panel you put together and Thank you very much for sharing your experiences. I just have a question for brief answer, uh, so it won't take any long, very, very much time. You're very successful. What is your best source of information, cutting edge information on water? It's a loaded question. <laughs> On water, yeah. What, what is your best source on water? Of information. Of information, yes. Sorry. Um, well, for me, it's an easy answer because this uh, family has previous experience in Australia. Um, they brought to Argentina a lot of experience on this subject. But also, we have adapted because it wasn't sometimes not a good decision to transfer technology from there and <clears throat> try to install it in, in Argentina. But most of the, our information about water is coming from, from there. Uh, for me, that's easy too. Being a soil and water commissioner in Franklin County, we work with the NRCS, so a lot of my information and what we are doing and different projects we're doing uh, comes from NRCS and the people they work with, and Iowa State, of course. Brandon? You know, we've been blessed really in, in our area of Nebraska, you know, not only with being tied in with the University of Nebraska through the extension education system, through the uh, uh, water management networks and, and, and the different education systems that we have there, but we also have a very solid uh, NRD in the Upper Big Blue NRD that, that have really done a good job of making sure they stay on the the forefront of, of irrigation and some different things. So, so a lot of ours comes from networking, let alone from, from researching things on our own on the internet, but a lot of, built up a lot of good relationships, especially within the University of Nebraska um, program to, to really learn about how to better utilize what we have. Uh, I may not be asked, answering the very appropriate answer because sometimes I don't get the question very well. But anyway, as regards water, the importance of water was instilled in us. 
when we were very very small my father was a uh, waterworks engineer and he stayed in garhwal and there we had seen from our childhood how he used to harness water there were tiny streams that ran down the uh, mountains he used to harness it he used to put something uh, some metal piece over there and the water floated like this and he used to uh, collect it in cash and this is how he taught the villagers how to harness water so even whenever we were dropping even a drop of water was being wasted by us we were scolded for that and right from a childhood like like this we were told about the importance of water now when we used to take rest as children we used to go up hills and go down the valley to in search of water sources so this is how we were this value for water was instilled in us and we try to make use the entire family my brothers and all we try to make use conserve water in the best possible manner and make you the best use of it where possible that's why we in our farm to whatever level possible i try to conserve water well i'd like to add my thank you to the panel you you did an excellent job of uh, presenting your uh, farming operations and what you face and what you think about the future. And uh, I'm sure they'll be around if you want to talk to them individually afterwards, uh, but join me in thanking them again. <laughs>